0: You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. We wild the child.
1: Here is your host, Emily.
0: Hello, welcome back to episode 36 of the Untaming Podcast and our last podcast for the year and the season. I hope you found the first half of Kevin's interview last week insightful. If you haven't listened to it yet, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to it before this one, as this is a continuation of my conversation with him. Today we talk about children being deprived of connection in this civilized world, living with trauma, healing rituals, self-care, shamanism, ayahuasca, and cultural appropriation. So definitely not some light listening. Last week, we reached over 20,000 total downloads from 70 countries in the world. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please, please, please write a review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. It actually really does help. Your review helps others to find the podcast. And most of all, it really makes me feel like all the work that I put in behind the scenes is worth it. This has been the culmination of me Using up that precious time at night between my kids sleeping and me going to sleep too. And whenever my parents or mother-in-law can take their kids for a few hours, this is what that spare time gets dedicated to. So I do it because I believe it's very important to get this information out there. But I really am looking forward to a break for a few months. So I would really appreciate your acknowledgement of all the time I put in through a review please and thank you. I'll be picking up season three again sometime in May or June next year, but in the off-season I have a surprise for you, a little something additional that I have been working on with the help of some guests and listeners. I won't give too much away, but the first episode of this new series will be coming out on the full moon of the 29th of January. Just something a little bit fun. When I was putting this episode together, I read something on Kevin's website that I thought I should read out to you. Each of us is born a nomadic forager. The domestication process ensures that we don't see that. More to the point that we don't act on it. It allows us to be complicit in the subjugation and destruction of our world. Through grounding and reconnecting with our wildness, resistance ceases to be externalized. It becomes real. It ceases to be ideological and isolated. So you were talking about your essay, hooked on a feeling, which you posted online a few months ago. I, mm-hmm. I actually I found it so riveting. That's what ultimately compelled me to buy all of your books. <laughs> but, That's good to hear. Yeah. So what really struck me is you know the rampant use of alcohol and. Uh, drugs in our society to fuel our need for connection and feelings of euphoria because like you've just said as children we've been deprived of receiving these naturally so i want to hear more about
1: this i mean it's it's something that i i do want to reiterate often uh and i i do want to i hope that i made clear in the essay and i hope i continue to like, like my brother and i had shared experiences that were traumatic that led us to go very different directions i don't do drugs i don't smoke i don't drink um he died of a heroin overdose like he did do drugs he did go through the system he did go um with a lot of uh different mind altering substances over the years and in, in a way it's it's you know two different responses to a similar situation and obviously not every time everybody's drinking or smoking or everything like that isn't necessarily trauma although you can talk about in natasha and i do that the base of civilized existence is trauma and is also built on an abusive relationship. But like, you know, more specifically, like it not, not always is it the kind of trauma that, that I'm speaking of, I've experienced or something. I'm not trying to shame people for escaping. I understand like my, my goal with trying to understand that. And I mean, I put like 15 years into that essay Uh, it took me, you know, I spent a lot of time researching it and it was just like this realization I had looking at, um, nomadic hunter gather societies prior to contact and the lack of, uh, you know, intoxicating substances or the, the lack of interest in them, even if like neighboring horticultural or pastoral societies were using native intoxicants was something that really stuck out, stuck out to me, um, and, you know, um, what I got to, and I kind of like step back here, and how I lay out in the, the essays I open with talking about these hands-on healing rituals. So, like, what, what I think is important for the human experience, what I think is important for uh, for healing and for bonding, and I think it's really crucial, too, to point out, like, the most healthy egalitarian societies that have ever existed still regularly took part in healing rituals we have nothing of the sort like we can talk about self-care all day long but like you know like be being we equate self-care with being like indulgent um which is not not a good starting point but um you know the the healthiest societies still had these things i mean this is just this is this is kind of what i was just getting off the, the last question um, there are complicated things that arise from being a living being and like death is one of them, but like, there are definitely things that worse with death. There's things that can happen, but it's not like I think people are traumatized in a way that makes them so that they're always fearing life. I mean, like you look at this Disney view or this discovery view of nature uh, as a, as this weird entity that exists on its own. And it's always like, oh, it's all hunters for survival and who's going to survive. It's like, you know, most, most beings aren't really thinking about that. It's like when you look at what hunter gatherers do on a day to day existence, it's not like who's going to go out and get the food. It's like, I'm going to just like sing my way through maniacal tasks. It's like the same kind of thing I do. It's like, it's like whistling and you know, uh, singing while you're doing the dishes or like taking a shower or something like that. Yeah. Like that's, that's really what's happening. People play, they just hang out and just gossip and talk about whatever. Um, but there still are issues that happen. There's still things that happen that cause, uh, stress on individuals or stress between individuals. And you, you can use this chance of attaining this euphoric state by just being involved. Like when you're looking at the brain from a very biological level, um, you know, the way that, uh, dopamine works, or that serotonin receptors work, the feelings that you get that make you feel good, the kind of feelings that you get from any intoxicating substance they can all come from different means and this hands-on healing thing is is exceptional i mean this is like a really powerful thing and if you've had any experience with it i mean then i think you can you can attest to it but like there's something to be said about having a group of people that are just like open and vulnerable and and really guards down saying like i'm hurting and i don't want to hurt i want to work through the pain you know, it's counterintuitive to the way that we're, we're trained to think and the way we're trained to work. But, I mean, there's a lot to be said about it and a lot to show for how it works. And uh, so they were able to do these these uh, hands-on healing rituals. They tend to be relatively similar in hunter-gatherer societies throughout the world, uh, but also in varying degrees in, like, horticultural societies or pastoral societies, uh, and even in some degrees with, like, agrarian societies. Um, but... People just get together and they, they sing. If there's a problem going on, it's not like this huge religious ritual that we know of where it's like planned and articulated. And it's like, well, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. It's all voluntary. Yeah. Like if if you feel like you need to take part in, it, you take part in it. If you start to do it and it doesn't – and nobody's feeling it, everybody just walks away and nobody's, nobody's upset. Nobody's, nobody's like going like, OK, like, well, I'm angry because I want it to happen and you're not making it happen. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Like the spirit's not there, the spirit's not there. Um, so, you have this thing where people are attaining euphoric states, uh, and it's just, just through singing and dancing, and just through communicating, just being with each other and surrounding each other around a fire. It usually takes place at night. Um, sometimes, sometimes there is fire, and sometimes there isn't. Uh, that really stood out to me. Um, and then what ends up happening is that. The more domestication kind of creeps in, uh, the more that hierarchy or, or any semblance of even like kind of power in any micro sense exists, the more that this kind of hands-on thing is kind of given over to a, um, a specialist of sorts. And typically we call that person a shaman. Uh, In fact, in that essay, I I do kind of use the term shaman, but it's technically not correct. And most usage of the word shaman, I regret it more in the sense of like, um, you know, there's technicalities to its use, but also the rewilding movement is definitely no stranger to cultural appropriation. Mm. And infusing words like shamanism into it has created massive problems. And there's a lot of white people who are like, I am a shaman. And there was a whole period, or even around the time I think I was writing that essay, where people were like, "You know, I've always had this feeling that I'm a shaman. I've had these dreams, and the only explanation can be I'm a shaman." It's like, no, look, <laughs> did you come from the society? I was like, realistically, shamans come from a couple societies. There's medicine people. There's two spirits. There's people who have had like these kind of like liminal roles in a society where they take on a similar kind of place they're not calling themselves shaman so if you're like not coming from any of the societies where somebody was actually a shaman there's a shamanic tradition and it's taught and passed on no you're not a shaman mm. you're just somebody who read a cultural appropriating white person from the sixty, the 40s 50s 60s 70s that just didn't get it and they just threw the term out there and it took off and it took off on a life of its own and i mean some of these things are like horribly insidious and the um, like the Navajo Reservation in the United States is the highest per capita um, coronavirus rates and also I think one of the highest death rates um, out of anywhere. And in this period of like everything was shut down and the reservations were like hardline shutting down and there was a lot of indigenous mutual aid programs are still going on, which are horribly impressive. There's white people being like, I've been inspired by these people to do a shamanic retreat and I'm going to do it in this area. And they're talking about areas that are in proximity to or um, within like these reserves and reservations where Mm. everything is actually shut down. It's like Mm. this is the most insane colonial shit. I mean, it's it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But anyways, long story short, be careful with the word shaman and don't don't self apply it ever. Mm. (laughs) Like ever. Most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, it does not apply. Don't just leave it alone. But you do see that there is this kind of role arising of having a person whose role is to be an intermediary between like the spirit world or between like this, um, you know, kind of speaking for the force or speaking for the environment. And that person will kind of lead the ceremonies. And typically that person has like a lot more weight put on them because in a in a hands-on healing situation, you know, half the people can be considered healers. Half the people can be considered like the, the primary conduits, but everybody's capable of obtaining this this, this ecstatic state. Yeah. And increasingly it's led towards like a smaller and smaller group of people who take a part in these ceremonies. But then as civilization builds, as as hierarchy builds, then like that kind of pattern of you know, ritualistic intoxication, you know, it takes on like a different form, but then it kind of comes from the bottom up again. Um, Just like dealing with the grunt work of being within civilization or being at the edge of a civilization or expanding civilization just to get through the day. People start taking it from this like religious, sacred kind of experience of like, how do I attain this other state to just like, how do I get through this miserable existence that I'm in? And, you know, I talked about being a part of armies, colonizers, frontline settlers, uh, but also... You know, I mean, this is a huge thing with CEOs just being all jacked up. Like, and, and we've created this situation where that need for any kind of like connection with other people or any kind of spiritual connection is so bereft and life is so meaningless for so many of us and so hard for so many of us and so painful for so many of us that this thing that was being used in the sense, for this like specific spiritual connection is just like, yeah, but how messed up can it get me? How much better can it make me feel? How much more? I want that euphoria. I don't care how long it lasts. I don't care what's going to happen. I cannot take where I'm at. I need that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it turns into an epidemic and it's not a surprise. I mean, it says a lot about civilization for as much as people want to talk about romanticizing hunter gatherers. It's like, okay, well, We've just kind of stopped, especially in the United States, talking about this heroin epidemic, the opioid epidemic. Uh, right now, even like the Sackler family, they just got like lit off after all these years of litigation. This entire opioid epidemic was a a, a a capitalistic crisis that was fueled by drug wars, was fueled by imperialistic expansion. And you want to look at it like, you know, my brother died somewhere between the infusion of Afghani opium to uh, the Mexican cartels and like like higher grades and stuff like that uh, it's like the subtext of civilization is addiction and it's, it follows the same patterns of like imperialism and as far as warfare as far as expansion and colonialism uh but i mean it is just so telling that there's so much of this society and so much of this world that has Stood up for civilizations, arguing for civilization while ultimately being unable to even get through the days of it. And I mean, it's it's depressing. I mean, in the hard part, again, this is one of the hard parts about talking about primal anarchy and talking about uh, how it is a, such a, a predominant factor in our lives and how much it is present within our being. And that's this yearning that we have um, like all these things are still there, like civilization didn't kill them it's killed a lot of people. It's killed a lot of lives. It's destroyed a lot of things, but it has not killed the spirit. It has not killed this, this being. It has not killed this, this entity and this, this energy and uh, connection that is possible. It just has us redirected. And when you look at something like uh, opium and heroin, and I mean, this has been like an, an issue within civilization for some time, but when you're looking at it right now, you know, I've, I've known a number of people who have been addicted to op- opioids and I've known only one person who actually ever got off of it. Um, and this is a lot. It takes two years to repair serotonin receptors uh, after you get off. If you, if you, if you get off opiates cold, that's how long it takes. Um, so it's like you get chemically de- dependent upon feeling joy. Um, and then for potentially for two years, like you're not going to feel any of those feelings that you felt while you're addicted. I mean, when you think about how much a drug like heroin or opiates can take over somebody's brain. And if you've known anybody who's been addicted to heroin or opiates, you've seen the pattern you've seen. It's like this person is being completely hijacked and all that they can focus on is any kind of manipulation or any kind of degree of uh, sway that they need to get another fix. I mean, it's the way the drug works. It's, it's, what, it, it's, it's what it does. It's just like, what we know it's going to do, it will know the pain and make you feel in this way that it sounds, I mean, frankly, it sounds wonderful. Uh, and if you're, if your life is meaningful, this, or your life is, is painful. And if you've got all these unprocessed, un- unaddressed traumas, like why wouldn't you do that? And I've known people and it's like with a case, like somebody like my brother, you know, I did spend 10 years before I, I had somebody else really close to me die from opiates. Uh, Of being like, what didn't I do correctly? Like, what didn't I do to to save my brother's life? And I lost somebody else and saw this pattern over, like, another six, seven, eight years of watching them go. And it's like, I, I can't compete with that. I can't compete with injectable dopamine or serotonin, like, euphoric synapse. I can't tell you. Like, if you got to the point, everybody knows heroin is going to probably kill you at this point. I think people should. Uh, at this point, but people still turn to do it. And you can get to worse. You could look at something like crystal meth, or like in Russia, the thing I mentioned in in this essay uh, is crocodile, which is called crocodile because people shoot it's It's like straight up toxic, like chemicals. Uh, and if you miss a spot, it will just kill the skin around it. And that's what they say it makes you look like crocodile skin. And I mean, the, the mortality rates for it are ridiculous. And frankly, I would not want to live. Um, with any of that stuff, but there's like where I'm at right now, uh, there's a Russian population, there's decent sized Russian population. And I'm hearing local people like dealing with, you know, they're like, Oh, well, somebody found ran out of opiates and somebody taught them how to make crocodile. And, uh, they're just using it. Like if somebody gets to the point where they're willing to do it, to be able to reach them at the point at which they're already addicted and convince them that life is worth more than that. And that to compete with that drug and what it has to offer them in a real, tangible way, and to say, by the way, it can take two years for your brain to reprogram itself. If you're lucky, uh, then you'll be able to feel joy organically again at the same way. Like civilization, you know, we don't have that much to offer. We're gonna be like, hey, but guess what? We got iPhones. How cool is that? Like, all these people talking about the ingenuity and the smartness, it's like the same ingenuity that produced that created the opiate epidemic. Like, that's what civilization is. You know, people to talk about romanticizing. That's what thats what you're not talking about. That's what we need to be talking about. We don't talk about longevity. It's like you could live, there are people who have lived a long time on, on opiates, and you can see, you know, there's, there's people who are like, you know, I've heard rumors about, Lemmy from Motorhead having doctors who were giving them like, uh, like prescri- prescribed amounts. And all these rock stars were getting, like, prescribed amounts from these doctors of Coke or of heroin or whatever. Just, like, keep them going. Because um, they were so addicted. And this is like, well, they're not going to do anything else. So at least we can do is monitor it. I mean, again, all these things are civilization. I, mean, I will take my odds any day with hunter Gather Existence and Stone Scrapers. <laughs> over like an iPhone and uh, a syringe full of heroin. But mm. that's that is a depressing reality is it's like we ended up here and that makes it hard for people to see past it. And you have to see the parallels in our own lives for addiction. We're all addicted to something. Like we all get our fix. We all like we're all missing this community aspect that we should have as social animals. This is communities that we don't have. Um, and what is the thing that's filling in those blanks for us? And it could be a bunch of things. And, you know, we want to be able to say like, uh, the thing I'm into isn't as bad as the thing you're into. And I mean, it's like, it's, it's not a point to just sit here and be like judging. It's not my goal. I'm not trying to say it's like, well, because I don't do it. I'm any better off than my brother who did. Uh, it's just, I just happen to go a different route, but like it's, it's important and absolutely vital to me to say, this is where this comes from. And this is like, this is again, showing over and over again, this is what civilization is. This is the trap that we're involved in. So you know, how do we stop that pattern?
0: Well, continuing on with like mind-altering substances and shamanism, I know you've written an entire book on ayahuasca and how hipsters feel entitled to these isolated aspects of indigenous societies. But I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about this along with the white savior complex, which you just alluded to, I think before with shamanism.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I could write a whole book on it. And you did. <laughs> and I did. Uh, the cold personality. I mean, this book is really important to me and I get people who have told me before they're like, well, I don't really plan on doing ayahuasca. Or I've only done ayahuasca once or I've heard about it. So, I mean, they're like, I don't really want to talk. About, like they're, they're like, I'm not going to take the time to read a book about it. I was like, well, ayahuasca is like a part of the story but this the the subject here is colonialism it's all the different iterations of it um this wider entitlement white supremacist mission that has been going on throughout the world for far too long there's a number of aspects of this book and this story and just to kind of sum it up the 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 core of the book surrounds the murder of uh, an 80-year-old Shipibo-Conibo healer in Peru uh, named Olivia Arvalo. Uh, she's like a massive proponent of her indigenous rights. She was a, a known, renowned plant healer in the community. Uh, and this Canadian man, uh, Sebastian Woodruff, found out about ayahuasca on the internet. He had heard about addiction issues. And I mean, frankly, had been involved in some of these same kind of these discussions about saying, there's something missing in our society and the standard 12 step programs, the standard recovery programs that we have, aren't giving enough meaning or aren't giving enough life to people to justify getting people help. You know, is there a different substance that can make those programs better? I have a lot of issues with that. Um, I have a lot of issues with like, you know, the 12 step approach and all these different ideas people had about, uh, well, the problem is the kind of drug that's being used as the therapy. Um, uh, But, I mean, on the base of it, like, it was just this idea of, like, here's this thing that I found in the forest, another, like, resource that is going to be the thing that's going to save us. And on top of it being the thing to save us, I'm going to be the one to go down there and get it, and I'm going to bring it back here, and I'm going to save everybody. And in the process, I'm going to uphold this traditional ecological knowledge of these indigenous groups and you know i'm gonna learn their their songs i'm gonna learn their prayers i'm gonna learn their rituals and i'm just gonna take them and bring them up here and then it will be one big happy family <laughs> it didn't go that way he went back and forth for five years he increasingly went off the rails uh, as as a person uh and on uh, i think it's april 19 2018 um, after months of trying to get Olivia Arvalo to give him these songs, and there's there's conflicting stories about you know the full details of what happened. He he went to her house with a gun that he had bought weeks earlier. He demanded these songs, he demanded this knowledge. She said no, and he shot and killed her. Uh, and she died in her child's arms. And the reason we hear about this story, and this is one of the parts that's like girl also really like, like there's, there's every layer of civilizations in the story. Uh, I mean, every layer of civilization is in every story. But for me, it's like, you know, you keep digging on these, and it's like, these, this just hurts on every level. The reason we heard about her death is not because a white man killed a Native woman. Uh, the, we have the entire trajectory of Western history to show that, like, this this massive ongoing issue, I call it uh, missing and murder an Indigenous woman, and two spirits in... Uh, in the Americas, but it's a, a global phenomenon that basically on any, all the, the frontier existence, a part of the expansion of civilization, white men killing native women is a phenomenon that is never addressed. And it is like, like in some degrees, it's like never persecuted, not even considered a crime. um, and you see this in pipeline resistance movements that are happening in the Americas, uh, resistance demand man camps, which are pipeline workers who are stationed to build these pipelines through indigenous communities. Um, it's, this is a horrifyingly huge issue. And if you're not familiar with it, you really need to be. Um, there's a lot of aspects about the history of civilization, the history of colonialism, that is just like perpetuated against indigenous women uh, and indigenous children in these horrific ways that I'm like speaking to but you know that's part of the story like we would not have heard just Olivier Arvalo's story but the thing that put it into the national or I'm sorry the international media was that in response uh it should be kind of what people the villagers just said like're we this is enough we know who did this we're got to get them and they they ended up lynching them the next day um and so the killing of Sebastian Woodruff i sorry, Woodruff is what made international news. And that's why I ended up hearing about the story. It's like the same way that Sebastian found about it, ayahuasca on the internet. And I mean, there's like horrific aspects of the story. But I mean, the part of it, when I first heard about it, my first reaction was saying I wanted to talk to you, particularly like indigenous women involved with like, um, traditional ecological knowledge and dealing with herbalism and plant healing uh and get their take on it and I, I talked to a number of indigenous women and a lot of them said the same thing they're like do you understand like we don't get to be angry about this the way that a white dude does like our response to the story isn't going to be the same as yours and i realized that i mean the sad truth of it is like if i'm looking at the story my perspective my experience speaks far more to sebastian Rearworth. this is a guy who would not have been unfamiliar with the rewilding world uh he had Planned and paid for his trips to go down and get this knowledge by um, selling uh, mushroom hunting expeditions and stuff like that tours. So he was like selling chanterelles. He was selling free trade organic coffee. I am sorry, not coffee, chocolate. Um, like this is somebody that I probably would have met. This is somebody that, like, I am not saying I would have got along with or anything, but I am saying it's like somebody who is much closer to my my circle, much closer to my experience, and it shows just how ridiculously easy it is for a white person within this white supremacist civilization to just step into this role of a colonizer so easily. Like, I mean, moving from like, you know, like this almost passive existence of as like a settler colonizer who's embodied with the spirit and the ethos of colonization and imperialism uh, and is a product of it, but also to just take that extra step and just commit like colonial murder and to, to become a part of the colonial ex, extraction machine. And so alongside with that, and I mean, I think this is a part that's especially relevant for people who would also identify in some degree with Sebastian Woodruff as, as the person, not as, you know, sort of as like the murderer, are these degrees of like traditional ecological knowledge and cultural appropriation, like how much this person felt like, okay, this plant exists in the world and uh, it's, it's up to somebody like me to like, just flatten the experience of I feel disconnected from everything, so I want to connect with the world. So I have free unfettered access to any any plant healing that may exist to any culture. And this is like an endemic thing. This is a hard thing within the rewilding scene or within the rewilding movement. Um, you know there's a ton of people that not only are doing a shaman thing, but much more common than that would be to like burn white sage. All these different aspects of cultural appropriation. I mean they're they're hugely problematic issues. But then also like this, this thing is just like, it keeps peeling and peeling and peeling. And so alongside that, here's this idea that uh, ayahuasca, and I mean, I go into the whole history of like ayahuasca use. And I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for it. I hope people read the book. I think it's really an important story. Uh, and it, it centers around this killing, but it uses the killing as a means to talk about these patterns of colonialism and linking, um, somebody like Woodruff up to Pizarro who was the colonizer who had, uh, you know, colonized and conquered, uh, Peru, uh, and take part in all these things. Uh, and I, I said in there, I'm like, what, what set him aside? Cause, uh, Bartolome de las Casas had been involved with Pizarro. He had known him for multiple campaigns. You know, this is the guy who would, like, was like supposed to have been the saint of, uh, talking about the, the horrors of colonization and conquest. And he's like, the thing that made Pizarro stand out to him the most was that when Pizarro would colonize people and he decimated people after he killed off almost everybody. And he took the few remaining people and he would talk to them and convince them in ways to make it sound like he was there to save them. Like he at the end of the day, the thing that that scared him more than any of the killing was that this person who had done all the killing then said, I'm here to help you. I'm here to which is ironic for a Christian to say he's a missionary by all means. That that's that stood out to him. Uh, even in spite of all that horrific violence. But then the language that Pizarro had used and the language that Woodruff had using were identical. This thing like he you know, we talk about him in a way that he meant well. Uh, we judge him by his intentions rather than his actions. It's like this colonial whitewashing that happens over and over, over and over and over again. And we're seeing it. Uh, but we we like really the story just unfolds and it really like focuses on the rubber trade, it focuses on the impacts of colonialism conquest and imperialism and all these different stages that kind of build into it. Um, but at the core of it, it's like this this internal, ter- internal turmoil of like this tortured civilized perspective. Of being like, we're going to destroy this land. We're going to take what we need from it. But then to come back after like the you know ayahuasca arises with the oil with the rubber boom of like eighteen eighty to like mid nineteen tens, the rises in Mestizo tradition, and then it becomes like more recently after Allen Ginsberg and all these these beats and everything like brought ayahuasca to the table as a mind altering substance, not as a a heal all. They open up the chasm to be like, well, here's this thing, like here's the silver lining of conquest. Here's the silver lining of the decimation of the Amazons and all these places is like, well, here's this plant that's been freed from it and it's meant for our use. And so in terms of washing your hands of it, I mean, the, the, the one aspect of it is like a person like Woodruff being like, I'm here to take this knowledge and uphold this traditional ecological knowledge, uh, these indigenous perspectives, indigenous relationships. That, you know, there's a huge question mark about a lot of, but to uphold them and say like, well, here they are, you know, have respect for these people, but to also have this insanely disconnected, bizarre colonial Western experience of being like, despite everything that has happened to indigenous peoples across the world, to still think that they represent some kind of mystic, romantic like unfettered oneness with the world that has been somehow unobstructed or unaffected by centuries of colonialism and by centuries of specific targeting by for by every means. I mean the good missionaries in this book, Gospel of Empire I'm writing is like really focusing on ethnocide and the ways in which like one, all these missionaries were really just stealing children for working on farms uh, and to be sold as sex slaves. Uh, but, the way that they specifically targeted native languages the way they native traditions, the way that, um, that healers had arisen in these communities and the ways that traditional knowledge had been passed on and the way that these healing rituals and things like that had taken place, all those things were being specifically targeted, like maliciously, intentionally, specifically targeted and outlawed. And even in the Americas and Australia, like very, very recently, all these means of like practicing traditional native healings were can we were outlawed or were being used punitively as, as much as executions or just like destroying people in every, every sense of the word, all these things that happened. But then a bunch of white people are just like, well, we're enlightened and we're finding out about natives all around the world. And we're finding out that they have these like almost mystical, magical, romantic notions and properties about them that make it so they have a oneness with the world that has made them unaffected. So after decimating people, after after having them under fire for all this time, to come back around and be like, yeah, but anyways, our lives are miserable. Like we killed a lot of you and we destroyed everything you've ever known. Uh, but hey, what's this knowledge and experience that you have that is going to give us meaning again? that is insane that is insanely malicious that's insanely like backhanded entitlement and just like again that's that hubris that's that bravado the colonizer that we just never addressed we never really thought about to take everything from a person and then to come back and be like but what's that other thing you got and how can i get it how can i use it and i'm feeling entitled to it so in in terms of like Thinking that the the problems that can be that have been caused by civilization that have caused depression and mental illness and to cause all these issues addiction issues within our societies to go back and be like, well, I think you guys have a have a ritual or you have some way of dealing with colonization that we're going to really mystify and then recreate the experience in a way that is going to enrich our own lives and by all means, I mean this is a this is a cottage church in a tourist industry. And there are a number of, like, particularly Mestizo people that play along with it that are like, this is indigenous culture, this is indigenous, all these beautiful things that are happening. And, you know, we're here to help give you meaning. But, I mean, who's going to fault them? Like, who's going to fault indigenous people or, or Mestizo people or, like, poor people who are in these areas that have been destroyed by colonialism for being, like, well, yeah, I'll take money from these white people who are lost and really just destroying the whole tradition, really destroying any any sense of anything that is associated with this for this touristic frenzy. But it really does the same thing as, like, any other addiction. Is It's just trying to say, what's the new thing I can consume that's going to make me feel better about my place in the world? And for them, you know we're selling this experience. It's like going to Disneyland. Um, and you go down to all these different uh, healing retreats and healing centers. You do hot yoga and all this other ridiculous stuff uh, and bundle it up in this package. And you can go out and, and feel like you've got more meaning in your life because you've, you've touched upon some ancient tradition that wasn't yours and wasn't yours to do. And you can also feel like somehow you've helped the people you've, you have actively taken part in colonizing or actively fed into like the imperialistic relationships with them uh, and diminish them by doing so and feel like, Oh, Hey, I've gotten something from this. I mean, it's, it's twisted. Mm. That's for sure. We can go on about it at length, which is what I do in the book, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. It's, it's not it's not an easy read no. uh, and it but it's, it's it's an infuriating situation
0: I want to um, switch switch this to something with some sort of optimism in it um, I've got your book here in front of me and I'll just read out this sentence like how civilization collapses isn't the topic right here what life might be like after the collapse is so I wonder if, to like wrap things up what what do we want for future generations
1: oh man i mean this is like i think this is one of the important things and i in the second edition of for wildness and Ararchy, which is when you got there yeah. you know i talk about it like for me a big part of it and like this whole question about anarchism and um there's a lot of nihilism there's a lot of uh just like anger that's it's not unjustified it's very righteous um was directed at the civilization, directed at the state, but for me it was important to say. It's like the title of the book is "I'm for Wild Anarchy." These are two things I want. Like for an anarchist book, I guess in a way that's like that's been kind of buried in the tradition. Um, but I wanted to be absolutely upfront and right there. And I mean, in talking about primal anarchy. And talking about the way that all these different societies work and, and having been involved in rewilding been involved with, like, um, you know, unsettling in, in solidarity with a lot of anti-colonial and decolonial resistance movements. I mean, like, it's not a horribly complicated picture for me to say what it is I want. Like, I wanted – well, I mean, I want to live in a world where civilization isn't, isn't systemically – isolating and destroying and burying all aspects of life uh and creating this ongoing misery that i'm having to see my own children subjected to as well and see the the, you know see and feel like the the consequences of it on like a living world i i do see the beauty in this life and i think that the thing that drives me the most is that despite everything that's been done to to absolutely rip apart our world and destroy all the beauty within it and destroy and disrupt every wild community. It's still there. You know, I mean, it's like, there's, you know, about 30 minutes from here is a town called Lancaster and this time of year, it's like, for some reason, this area is in this massive bird migration path and there's like millions of crows that gather and um, millions of, like hundreds of thousands of Canada geese and snow geese and tundra swans come through Uh, about 30 minutes north of that. And it's kind of, you know, the area is hard for a lot of things. It's a big agricultural area, but it's got some really awesome, like, wildlife as far as those bird migration patterns. And, you know, it's hard not to look at, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of crows all just hanging out and seemingly just shooting the shit and then going out and spending their days foraging and subsisting all around and then just coming back at night and they seem to be having a good time. It's not hard to look at that and be like, well, that's what life is meant to be. I mean, they're a social animal there. They have a lot of similarities to us. Crows just like us also can use fire. Um, and by all means, it seems as though they have a very similar approach to the world and they have dialects. Um, I don't, I mean, it's, you hear them talking and they clearly gossip and they they appear to have stories, and I I want my kids to have that. I want my kids to have my kids to have a world where stories don't have to be consequential, and we don't have to keep justifying every single thing it is that we're doing, and imagining that the resources that come into our lives come from nowhere and come from uh, detached from or pretend that they come detached from like these massive colonial imperial systems that spread throughout the world. And I, I don't want to have to keep explaining to my kids, why, why there's protests against the police, uh, why we say fuck the pigs and why we talk about abolishing, uh, abolition and having to explain to them why every single day in this country, there's, there's more about police shootings, uh, more about militia violence and white nationalists coming about um you know i'm gonna explain particularly my daughters like why nazis are a problem when we're jewish um mm. you know i mean there's just like I, I think about times when i wanted to you know when i before like when i was younger and getting involved through wilding and anarcho and thinking about how great it would be to be able to um you know, the feel the collapse coming at that time and in a different way. Uh, and just to think about, like, what would it be like to have children and raise them without having to teach them to read and write? Um, and, you know, you get a little older and wiser and you get a little more experience and you understand. It's like, well, you know, it is what it is. And there's problems that were, you know, that's not going anywhere anytime immediately soon, no matter how things are with the collapse uh, or this process of collapse. But you know, it's not so much to want to just imagine as a very baseline that we could be healthier and live without trauma uh, and have societies that resemble, you know, these habits of nomadic matter hunter societies, but at the very least are directly connected with the land and with the people within it and the animal and the population surrounding it and, you know, can feel the... Uh, both the loss and the resilience within the land that we exist within. But there's no way around it that we're not gonna get there without active resistance, that we're not gonna get there without having the story of the lands in which we exist within these stories that also include the role of the indigenous people that were here, the indigenous people that are still here, the, all the wild populations that have been eradicated and fought and have struggled alongside us or against us. Uh, or against civilization and its death drive, I want to believe that better existence is right there, and mm-hmm. I I want to believe that because I can feel that aspect of this primal anarchistic spirit within myself, like the part of me that wants to just tell stories and the part of me that wants to have just those kind of experiences with my kids and I feel them and I've experienced them, but. There's no question about it that we can't delude ourselves anymore into thinking that it's just going to happen without without things getting a lot worse before they get better. But I think it is important, that does not change the fact that I think it's absolutely crucial that there's a huge difference in talking about anarchism or talking about struggle in terms of what it looks like for a society to exist without the state, rather than just saying, I just want the state gone. Uh, so I mean I think that's an that's an important aspect of it for me. That's why I that's why I put that there, but it is entirely possible and nobody knows exactly how things are going to go down. All that is obvious is that they are and that that struggle against civilization has been going on from the very inception of domesticated plants and animals and it will go on for as long as the, as long as this thing is still stumbling along and it's absolutely crucial to to feel that not just understand it, but to feel it, and a, mm-hmm. to really break out of these modes of civilization's experiences. That's an important aspect. You have to move beyond just having this heady intellectual understanding of the world, but to feel that sense of integration with this primal anarchy and the spirit of resistance.
0: Yeah. And I want to just catch something you said before about crows being able to, what, use fire? I didn't know about this.
1: There were, um, I think it's like a lot more... I think a lot of the stories I've heard about have been in Australia, where they're like talking about fire breaks and things like that. And um, it's and uh, wildfires have been said. Crows have been seen taking fire sticks from further back from natural fires, and using them and dropping them further ahead to expand them.
0: <laughs> oh, is that too? Um, do they then catch like rodents and wildlife that are running away from the fire?
1: Uh, the the more I see in life, the less I presume in time. Oh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good to have stories,
0: yeah, yeah uh, oh, cool. but
1: but at the same time I'm not uh, I'm not trying to speak for the crews.
0: <laughs> no true. Um, okay, so I will put links in the show notes to your website Kevintucker.org, uh, the Black and Green press website and your Instagram page, and also the Primal Anarchy website. Is there anywhere else you recommend people if they you know, want to learn more or get in contact with you?
1: I think you just got them all and all the sites are related, but they're not necessarily easy to navigate across. But uh, I think that should all be there. And also I want to um, just uh, I've, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention like in a group like Indigenous Action um, oh, yeah. to do some amazing work. And I definitely encourage people to check that out and talk about Indigenous anarchism. Uh, they've really been at the forefront of a lot of great movements and a lot of great actions and a lot of great um just all-around aspects of resistance. But, um, you know, those of us who are looking to destroy the Western tradition are still very much learning, and the people who have actually put it all on the line are still out there. And um, there's a lot of links I can give, particularly in the States, um, for anti-pipeline and uh, anti-extractivist resistance. But I'm sure that, I mean, I know these things are happening all across the world.
0: Mm. Well... Kevin, I have been looking forward to talking to you for a long time and you have not disappointed. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share this knowledge with us today.
1: Well, I really appreciate you having me and I look forward to it and uh, I'm very, very glad you did. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) So my final question for you to end on is if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be?
1: I hope it was worth it.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.